Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. While you're turning, uh, I want to echo uh, James's uh, words there about the importance of the community Thanksgiving dinner and say probably a, a little bit about it. Um, so I can remember way back to when our church was, uh, was pretty tiny and we would have the community Thanksgiving dinner in the three or four Sunday school rooms in the back. And uh, the community, as it were, uh, was just the members of our church and some folks that they had invited to come and have a dinner at our church. And uh, I remember when it moved to the school because we were running out of space in the back and we just couldn't do it there anymore. And it became kind of a staple for our church and something that we would do and people from the community Gen genuinely started to come uh, pretty faithfully year by year to it. There are people who come to the community Thanksgiving dinner uh, who we don't see throughout the rest of the year, but they come for that year by year. That's, uh, it's, their, uh, it's their understanding that it is not just a church event. It is uh, what we intend it to be, a community event, a chance for everyone who is in our community or the surrounding communities, our area, to gather together at Thanksgiving and before we eat uh, to pray as we always do and publicly thank God for the giving of His Son Jesus Christ uh, for His work and for His sustenance in our community and our area and to take this gathering of us uh, as a token of our thanksgiving towards Him for all that He does and all that He has promised to continue to do in and among his people. And it's something to me that, that we do that each year. And it's always remarkable to me that so many people come. Um, in 2012, um, when uh, I became a pastor, and Nathan became a pastor, and Rodney became a pastor, um, there was a lot of conflict that fall in our church. And it just so happened that very shortly before the community Thanksgiving dinner, a lot of people left. And the people that left were a lot of the older people in our church. They didn't like one of the ways that we had dealt with a very public sin in the church. And when they left, uh, I remember discussions in the back um, among the pastors. And I don't think I'm betraying anything now, but what do we do about the community Thanksgiving dinner? Our church had just lost uh, dozens of people. And so it happened to be a lot of the people whose names were already signed up <laughs> in the back for the community Thanksgiving dinner. And, and now it's like, well, what do we do? How do we approach this? And I won't go into all the details of the conversation. I probably wouldn't even remember them all now. But I remember that we came to the conclusion, um, we, we believe that this is important to our church and our community. And we believe that because of that, that God is going to work in our people to still do this. Because it is a, it, it's a lot of work. Back then it was even more work. It was a lot of work. And we decided to move forward and we had the community Thanksgiving dinner and uh, everybody chipped in uh, and everybody brought lots and lots of food, far beyond what they normally signed up for. And it was, in a very difficult time, it was an affirmation that, you know, God would work in our, in our church and in our people and in the community still, even in a, a very difficult time. Um, fast forward to last year when we couldn't get the school because of COVID and everything that's happened. We just couldn't get it. Whether we wanted to do it or not, there was no site available to us. And uh, by, by this point, we were having four or 500 people come to the community Thanksgiving dinner. It would not work physically here. We just, we couldn't do it. And so we had a scaled down church Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, some of you will remember that. We had it right, at, right here in the sanctuary. Um, and now this year, we can get to school. And we are going right back to the community Thanksgiving dinner. And we don't know how many people are going to come. And, you know, we have a sign-up sheet and we're trusting in our church members once again to resume the call and to serve, both by bringing food and by coming and physically serving. And I have faith that that, that sheet will be full and that people will do well, not in service, you know, to me or to a pastor or to a planning committee, but in service to the Lord. And now we need... We need to all of us take the responsibility to make sure that we invite people back to this community Thanksgiving dinner. 
because there's still ambiguity in the world about, well, I don't know if they're still doing this this year. And not just about the community Thanksgiving dinner, but about a lot of things. You know, even around sports and basketball, I've had people ask me, you know, are, are families allowed to come this year and watch basketball? There's just ambiguity. And we need to not take for granted that people know or that they'll see an advertisement on Facebook or a flyer. We need to tell the community that they are welcome and that this dinner is for the Lord um, and for them. Uh, so we, you know, this is this coming Wednesday and I think we need to take this call seriously. Um, and that's why I wanted to take a, mi a minute here at the beginning of the sermon and try to call you to that. You need to call friends and family. And you need to be public where you have the opportunity to be public about what we're doing. And um, the Lord will be honored at that dinner. We will stand up and we will pray before the community. And the Lord will be honored there. And I ask you to be a part of that. And I'm sure, I'm sure all of you will. Um, so with that said, in John chapter 1, why are we in John chapter 1? We've been in 1 Corinthians, so why are we in John chapter 1? I did make mention in a previous uh, sermon that we are going to turn our attention uh, a little earlier this year than we typically do to what is commonly referred to as the Christmas story or the coming of Jesus. Um, I don't want to take for granted that uh, everyone is familiar with what the Bible has to say about this. Um, I don't take for granted that if you went to Sunday school as a kid that it was taught thoroughly or, or that uh, you remember everything that you were taught or that you are in Sunday school or teaching areas now where this continues to be taught. And this is... I think one of the most misunderstood things about the Bible in our culture is what exactly it's trying to do and accomplish. What exactly, why do we have the Bible? What is its purpose? You know, the Bible is a collection of books. That's what it is. 66 books. And why do we have these books? Are all of them important? To what extent are they important? Is there a cohesive thing that these 66 books together are working together to accomplish? Or... Do some of the books deal with certain things that don't apply to other subjects that apply to us? And therefore, they're not a part of, you know, our teaching vernacular, our curriculum. They don't... Now, it's been the testimony of our church in the way we have taught through the Bible for many, many years that all of God's Word is inspired and all of God's Word is telling a cohesive story. In our youth group and in our children's teaching and training. We have made it a point in our curriculum to make sure we are covering as best we can the fullness of the scriptures, even if some of it is in survey form. Many of you uh, uh, might have uh, grown up under Steve's oversight in teaching of children uh, and seen the thoroughness of how each book of the Bible receives a treatment uh, in our children training on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and uh, how we've approached this in the past. So for our church, and that's where you're gathered to get today, it's important to, to say that um, when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about the revelation of God for a specific purpose. And that revelation of God is not to tell you everything that's happened in the history of the world. And it's not to tell you all about ancient peoples or dinosaurs or floods, etc. All of those topics only come up as they pertain to the story that the Bible is working to tell. And it is working to tell a cohesive story. And that story is the story of Jesus from front to back. Um, Justin, you know, I don't know if, if you've put, I don't know why you read 1 John 1 this morning, but I'm, I was scrambling, even sitting in the pew. This is not no joke, because sometimes I will send Justin a message on Sunday morning saying, hey, in Scripture reading, could you read this passage? And I was scrambling in the pew. Now, I was planning to turn to John 1, but I thought, man, I should have told Justin to have somebody, I didn't know who was reading, have somebody read from 1 John 1, because there's a lot of overlap in 1 John 1 to John 1, and they both are covered covering a lot of similar topic. Um, and, and, I, and then Justin stood up and he read 1 John 1 and I thought, wow, that's pretty neat because that doesn't always happen. 
And in John 1, what we get is we get a very bold statement. Now look at verse 1. Look at what it says. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And that should sound very familiar from 1 John chapter 1. Same biblical writer. Should sound very familiar. Um, in the beginning calls back to the very beginning. That's Genesis. That's the front of the Bible. The opening chapters. And what John is saying is in the beginning was the Word. And then we find out in verse 2 the Word is a person. He was in the beginning with God. This He, this person who was in the beginning with God who verse 1 said was God. And at verse 3, all things were made through Him. This is creation. This is the beginning of the book. And it's a person, this Word, who was both God and described as with God. The Word of God. All things were made through Him and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. What an incredible thing. In this person was life. And this life would have its depiction, its revelation in one particular part of creation. Men. This person who was God and who was with God would be in some way manifested in the creation of God. Specifically in men. Women, men. Verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then we pivot as John describes to us John the Baptist, who was the prophet that introduced Jesus. And this is what he says of John. John, the author of this gospel, is not John the Baptist, to allay any confusion. Two different Johns. So John now is writing about John the Baptist, and he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light. Well, the light is this person who was God and with God in the beginning, whose life was the light of men. And John the Baptist is sent by God, this says, to bear witness to that person. He was not the light. John the Baptist was not this person, but was sent to bear witness of the light of that person. Nine. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. There is something in Jesus. There is something in this light. Something in this person. That every human being has in common relation. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Which is always a sad thing for me to read. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is John the Gospel writer giving his personal testimony. We saw this man who was in the beginning, who is the light of all men, who was both with God and who is God. This man who without him nothing was created. Whom all things were made through. We saw him because he became flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw his glory. It was the glory that could only come from the only begotten Son of God. John bore witness of him. 
and cried out saying, This was he of whom it was said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. John said, This one who I am announcing, John the Baptist, this Messiah who comes after me is greater than me. He should be preferred before me, even though my ministry is significant and all you people are coming out into the wilderness to hear me talk. This one who comes after me is greater than me because he was before me. How far before him was Jesus? The beginning. All the way back. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That is emotional for me to read. Sorry. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So this book, from beginning to end, is about Jesus. And that's why I don't want to take for granted that you know that. Or that you understand that. So this morning we are going to begin to look at scriptures. Specifically this morning, Old Testament scriptures that announce the coming of Jesus. That's what we're going to think on this week. The coming of Jesus. Take your Bibles then and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We will just look initially at the first three verses. Genesis 1, we will read verses 1 through 3. This is the very beginning of the book. And let's see in the beginning what the Bible has to say first about God. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the word God is the word Elohim. El meaning God. Him giving it a plural ending. That's an interesting way for God to announce Himself in the first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God. One being described as plural. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, now we have one person of the Godhead revealed to us. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of El-Ohim, God, but plural, was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, this is why John in John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. <laughs> the commanding presence of God enacted upon creation is the Word of God. And John says that person is Jesus. Jesus, not created by God, but who was in the beginning with God, who was God, who through Him all things were created. This Word that would become flesh. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. The very first thing that God enacts upon creation is revelation. Now we know the word Elohim describes God but with a plural ending. And yet we know that one of the great cries and defining sentiments from God among His people in Israel comes to us in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5. You can turn there if you like. It's, it's just a few books to your right or you can listen because I only want to read these two verses. A lot of ground to cover. But listen to how this verse is laid out. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Now, 
If you were to turn, if you did turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, you would see that the word Lord in the English translation is all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. When you see in the English Old Testament the word Lord entirely capitalized, it is the English representation of the word in the Hebrew, Yahweh, the name of God. When Israel read this in the Hebrew, they did not read the word Lord as in king or ruler, as we think of the word Lord. They read the word Yahweh. Yahweh is what the text says. Now, we have the word Lord in capital letters in English to identify it for several different reasons, but I have never liked it because it's a name and I would like it if we simply had the English transliteration of that name. And some translations of the Bible put Jehovah, the word Jehovah, which is an English transliteration of the letters that make up the word Yahweh, but in the text this was Yahweh and that's significant. Because what this says is, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, a God we know by name, a God who has brought us out of the land of Egypt, a God who had victory over all the Egyptian gods, our God, Yahweh, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Even in that verse, the word God has a plural ending. Elohim. Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. People who would say, well, the Trinity is not defined in the Bible, are missing the forest from the trees. From the beginning, God identifies himself in a plural sense and yet a singular being. And if you ask me to explain how that's possible, I cannot. It is not possible with us. We live in very specific dimensions. Those dimensions Einstein has helped define. Those dimensions we know. There is the physical world that we live in, represented in three dimensions. There is gravity, which is a dimension that's enacted upon us and affects another dimension of time. And we can only be one person in one place at one time. And what the Bible declares from the beginning is he is not so confined. He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God represented throughout the Bible as working and enacting God's will upon the world. The Son of God described through Old Testament and New as the bodily represent, representation of God on this earth. And God the Father who rules and reigns in heaven, who sits on the throne and whom angels sit around and worship crying, Holy, 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 whom living creatures cry, Holy, 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 who in the book of Revelation the elders bow down crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. And in Revelation, that Father who sits on the throne will call his son to sit on the throne in his kingdom forever and ever. And that is John's startling revelation in chapter 5. I looked and behold, one like the Son of Man was approaching the throne of God. Men do not walk up to the throne of the living God. But one man does because he is God. He is represented in God in the beginning. And this book is about Him. Creation. All creation is about Him. Now in chapter 1, verse 26 of Genesis, we read this. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us... What an odd thing for God to say. Let us. And there are only two possible answers to who in the world God is speaking with. He is either speaking with himself, 
This plural Godhead, this singular being represented in three persons, or he's speaking to angels because there is nothing else yet. There is no man. And the problem with God speaking to angels here is what he says. Look at what he says. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Man was not made in the image of angels. Man was made in the image of God. Man was made in the image of Christ. This life was the light of man. And lest we over-spiritualize what God means in Genesis 1.26, He expounds for us, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The next time you hear someone say that human being is really no different from a fish or a cow or an ape, we're just a little bit more evolved. Understand, that is not the testimony of God. And every human being, regardless of how broken their body is, how flawed they are, regardless of any physical failing in their lives, any mental failing in their lives, every human being is a being made in the image of God and deserves dignity and respect for that alone. It was this doctrine that transformed the Roman Empire when they embraced the Christian faith. That there were not subhumans. That every being deserved dignity because every being possessed the imago Dei in Latin, the image of God. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this man that was created is not the sole possessor of the image of God. It says male and female he created him. This is not a gender specific idea. Every human being possesses the image of God. One interesting thing about creation that often gets overlooked in the creation story. Eve is named and the animals are named but you don't see a verse where Adam is named. Because Adam, in the language, is the word man. You could read verse 26. Let us make Adam in our image. You could read... You could read verse 26. In fact, you have to read it as the place where Adam's name is pronounced and declared. Sometimes when we read in the book of Romans or 1 Corinthians 15, we can be shocked by the way the New Testament gives such respect and prominence to Adam. Because Adam is put up there as a comparison to Jesus Christ himself. Adam and Christ are unique in all of the world in that they are both men that are direct creations of God in the physical manifestation of it. In other words, the physical flesh of Jesus came from the DNA of Mary and the Spirit of God. There is no male chromosomes in that DNA, a direct manifestation physically of God. And Adam shares that in common. Adam was legitimately a son of God, not a son of any other man. 
And Jesus is referred to as the better Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam in the New Testament. There is something prophetic happening in the relationship of God with Adam. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam falls. And we read this as the prophecy begins to take shape of what God is doing. Genesis chapter 3. Read with me, nearly without pausing here, the, the first 24 verses. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And there it is again, right? The Lord God. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. This is the grounds of Jesus to say that Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. The very first thing he does is call God a liar. And then here's the temptation. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. It's interesting to me, and it always has been, that with the understanding of evil comes the realization, the immediate realization of vulnerability and weakness and exposure. Fear. Fear. How do we know they were afraid? How do we know fear of this vulnerability, of this exposure caused them to do this? Well, verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I'll leave it to you to determine which person of the Godhead walked in the garden in the cool of the day. It wasn't the Spirit of God. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God. That's what it says. The Lord God. Among the trees of the garden, then Yahweh God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. See, it's an interesting thing when a child reaches a point in their life when fear of what might happen to them begins to drive their instincts. Because to a certain extent, to whatever degree that fear exists beyond or previous to a certain age level, the child is not inhibited in their actions. You know, Children will do very reckless things if left to their own devices. They don't have an understanding of the evil that's in the world. But there comes a point in time when a child looks at someone introduced to a new person, introduced to an environment, and their very first reaction is to step back, to hide behind mom's leg, to put their head down and bury it. They realize they're exposed they realize they can be seen. They very literally try to cover themselves. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. It's funny, the first thing a sinner does is passes the blame. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Passes the blame. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. Which sounds like, okay, a serpent, a snake, that's what we understand. It's led to all sorts of guesses and thoughts about what uh, we are meant to understand a serpent to originally have been. There's probably far more to this than we're going to cover this morning. But then the attention is turned to the person behind this speaking snake. Verse 15. This is Satan's judgment. And I will put enmity between you and the woman whom you attacked. And between your seed, your offspring, 
This is not talking about women being afraid of snakes. I'm afraid of snakes, so this doesn't apply there. This is talking about the spiritual offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, you will bite at his ankles, but he will crush your head. Now, who is the offspring? Who is the seed of a woman? Women do not have seeds without going into a biology class. There is only one being that has ever been born on the earth purely from the seed of a woman. And that is Jesus Christ. Then he turns to the woman and he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Notice it's this difficulty in offspring the fulfill, by which the fulfillment of this prophecy would be made where judgment comes to her. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Animosity between the genders began in the Garden of Eden because if there is a weaker vessel and a stronger vessel and if there is sin involved, there will be abuse and animosity right there. It will always be that way. Sinners will exploit. Sinners will abuse. Sinners will be envious. Sinners will want for themselves what someone else has. Verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. There's the judgment. Having to work is not the judgment. Having to work and not experiencing the blessing of your labor is a judgment. Now the ground will fight you. Living will be a toil. You will not remain in the garden of God. Your work will not merely be dominion over the creatures of the earth. Your work will be back-breaking work to an unyielding ground in order to live. And when you are done with your work, you will go back to the ground you have wrestled with. And die. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Death. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. With the first sin comes the first shedding of blood. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, dot, 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 therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. He placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There is something in the Garden of Eden that is spiritually beyond our physical understanding of life because you and I have been born into a fallen world, in a fallen earth, in fallen bodies that deteriorate and break. That was not the case in the Garden of Eden. There is more here physically happening in this transformation and judgment than we realize. Do not waste your time looking for the Garden of Eden on a map. It is dimensionally different from the place that you and I live. And then we find the opening verse of chapter 40. See what it says? Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Cain is the Hebrew word Cain, and it means a possession from the Lord. And that's what she says in verse 1. I have acquired a man from Yahweh. Eve thinks this man is the fulfillment of Yahweh's judgment on Satan, on the serpent. She is very wrong. Interesting, if we were to turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, we see this. Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image. 
Everyone after Adam was born a son of Adam, not a son of God. But everyone born in Jesus Christ, what do we read? Has been given the right to be called sons of God. The work of Jesus from the beginning was to redeem a human a human population <laughs> to adopt them into the family of God from which they were estranged by the sin of Adam. It's interesting then, and I want to walk you through these verses very quickly. You won't be able to turn to them, but I want you to see how the Old Testament then treats this because all of the Old Testament flows from Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Everything, every book that's there is flowing from that. We are not randomly following a people group in the Middle East for no reason. We are following a bloodline. Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham. Now listen to what God says to Abraham, the father of Israel. He says, Now the Lord has said, Get out of your country from your family and from your house to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And then here it is. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you... This promise is repeated three times in the book of Genesis alone, twice to Abraham and once to his offspring. In you, in your seed, after I make you a great nation, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Who accomplishes that? You should be thinking, Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In heaven, we see people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Who is the one being in all of the world whose birth, whose lineage, whose coming to the world blesses all the families, all the peoples, all the nations of the world? Only Jesus. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, Jacob, who receives the name Israel, he was the grandson of Abraham, Jacob, who receives the name Israel, has sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And he is blessing these sons because he is about to die. And when he gets to the tribe of Judah, this is what he says. This is his blessing for Judah, who, by the way, was not an amazing dude, not a great guy. But this is the blessing upon Judah and the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Or some of your translations may say, until he who is to come, comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word Shiloh is the one who is to come or the thing that is to come. In other words, through Judah, there would be a ruler and the scepter would not depart and he would come to fulfill the rulership of Judah. That is in Genesis 49. That is long before David, who was from the line of Judah. That is... <laughs> Hundreds and hundreds of years before David, let alone before Jesus from the tribe of Judah. The promise is reiterated to Moses. Exodus chapter 4. Listen to how God speaks to Israel, who now, since he left off with this promise of Judah in Egypt at the end of Genesis, now in Exodus, 400 years have passed. Israel has become enslaved by the Egyptians in Egypt and this is how God introduces his plan to save Israel from Egypt. Exodus chapter 4 verse 22, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Pharaoh, from Yahweh, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. 
In Israel, God did not merely see a poor nation of people that needed saved. He saw in Israel the seed of Abraham of whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And in Exodus 4, he begins to refer to the nation himself as his firstborn son. Because in the seed of Israel is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. To Joshua, after they wander in the wilderness. This is amazing. If you, if you turn there, we're just going to read five verses, but Joshua chapter 5, listen to this. So now they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and they're ready to go into the promised land. This is after they get out of Egypt. Now we're to the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 5 it says, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. During the Passover, they have a period of repentance that's prior to this, the first 10 verses, the first 9 verses of Joshua chapter 5. It's during the Passover and during the Passover, lo and behold, it says they ate of the produce of the land on the day of the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. The manna ceased on that day after they had eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked and behold a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. They are in enemy territory. They are celebrating the Passover. And on the Passover, Joshua looks up and he sees a man with a sword. And he says, Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? <laughs> they are in enemy territory. And so he said, the man answered, No, but as commander of the army, chased him with the rod of men and the blows of the Son of Man. Jesus never committed iniquity, but plenty of David's descendants did. But my mercy shall not depart from him. Saul sinned and God was done with his whole line. That wasn't going to happen with David because through David, the mercy of God would extend through every sinful descendant until it came to Jesus who would be the fulfillment of all these promises. Verse 16 says, Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. How long is forever when God says it? Let me tell you something. There is no human being sitting on the throne of David right now. But there is an heir of David who hasn't died, who's still alive, who died and is alive again. The throne belongs to him. David and the rest of the kings, you know, they, they don't do well. They perish, they fall into judgment. And then as Israel realizes their great kingdom of the Old Testament is coming to an end, their prophets, the prophets of the Lord, start looking to the kingdom that God has promised them forever that won't come to an end. And the prophets start to speak specifically of Jesus. This is 700 BC, 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Right before the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria, before the fall of the southern kingdom to Babylon, Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. The context of this is the king of Israel thought that he was about ready to be wiped out and Isaiah says, no, no, God's going to save you. And he says, go ahead, ask me for a sign that I'm telling you the truth. And the king of Israel says, I'm not going to ask God for any sign. And Isaiah says, fine, if you won't ask for a sign, I'll give you a sign that extends far beyond you. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name God with us. There will be a replacement to your kingdom and to your rule and to your judgment. In chapter 9 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 7, speaking of the judgment that the Babylonians would wreak, they turned their attention to the Savior who would come. 
Now listen to this. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali and afterwards more heavily oppressed her. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali are what we call Galilee. And these lands were lightly esteemed because they were the smallest and the furthest reaching areas. And they were oppressed because they were on the outskirts of the kingdom and enemies constantly raided. Whenever you see the Philistines fighting, they're always raiding in these lands. But then it says this, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, enemies overshadowing them, all their possession in the promised land. Those who walked in the valley of the shadow of death, those people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon them the light has shined. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nations and increased its joy. All the nations are blessed by this light that comes to Galilee. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandals from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. No more war battle garments will even be required for the people anymore. For unto us a child is born." Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Micah prophesying at the same time as Isaiah says this. Micah chapter 5 verses 2 through 5. Just listen if you don't want to turn. But you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Does that sound like a simple man to be born? No, out of you will be born a ruler, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old. He will come, the one who has from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time she was in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and this one shall be peace. That is not merely looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. That is looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Folks, I have just walked you through the timeline of the entire Old Testament and what we find is it is all about Jesus. And at the revelation of Jesus Christ in the final chapters of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, when all of this is accomplished and Jesus is speaking of the fulfillment of all of it, listen to this. The words of Jesus, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my, my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into that city, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. That is the invitation of God in Christ to you. Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. This is all about him. He was in the beginning, and he will be on the throne at the end. And next week, we will look at his life but I want to ask you in closing. What does it mean to reject Jesus? Consider just this one little apologetic argument. That 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament and among His people were documented and recorded. 700 years. That there would be a man born whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed by. Just think about that for a second. 700 years before Jesus. In Daniel, in Daniel, the timeline of his arrival was laid out so that he was expected. Even history, Josephus, a non-Christian historian, records that the Jews were filled with an expectancy because of an interpretation of their scriptures around the time of the coming of Jesus. The Gospels themselves say that many false messiahs arrived during this time, claiming to be the fulfillment at the proper time of Israel's Messiah. But none of those false messiahs went anywhere or did anything. But when Jesus comes, when He lives His life and He dies on the cross and He rises from the grave, somehow His name spreads throughout all the known world. Not at the head of an army. Not because He established a nation. But no one can deny, no atheist, no secular person, that the name of Jesus has not reached all over the world. Are there people groups in places of the world that don't know Jesus? Absolutely. But all over the world, the name of Jesus has gone. To continents they didn't even know existed 2,000 years ago, the name of Jesus has gone. And there is only one figure in all of history, prophetically, that could possibly fulfill any of this. And he's not only fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, he has fulfilled them in an overpowering, convincing way. Tell me one other person whose name became great because they were executed in their 30s. Tell me one other person whose name became great who never ruled an earthly kingdom, who never wrote an earthly law whose ministry lasted three years among poor people, who rejected every attempt to be made great or a king. Tell me anyone else who died with all but 120 people believing he was a fraud, whose name went throughout all the earth. I don't see how anyone could reject the name of Jesus. Clearly, the work of God has accomplished something that no other man has ever accomplished, though many have tried. Alexander the Great's name is not worshipped or revered. It's simply a footnote in history. Julius Caesar, footnote in history. No one's worshipping them. This is something special. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your love for us and for our salvation. Thank you for the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Scriptures that we should not be left in darkness, 
but that we should see what you've done, that we should see you for who you are. Thank you for the invitation to come, to repent of our sins, to come by faith to your Son, Jesus Christ, and to receive eternal promises. Thank you for salvation from Adam's judgment, from the dust of the ground, from an eternity of empty void, from judgment and suffering in hell. Thank you for the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent, that frees people from sin. Thank you for our forgiveness. Father, we marvel at the great cost that you paid. The blood of the sinless man, Jesus Christ. The very thought that you would take on flesh and blood to accomplish what we could not. And that you've done this so that we might have some promise and inheritance in your family. So that we might have the right to be called as adopted sons and daughters. Thank you, Father. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our honor. You are worthy of our giving. Father, if there's anyone here today who has not trusted you for their salvation, let them see the foolishness of whatever it is they're trusting in. The temporary value of their life, the vapor and the wind that it is, the ground that they'll return to, and the judgment that they'll face. Help them to see in your son Jesus a gift of love, an offering of peace. It's in his name that we pray, amen.